I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. Are your wiper blades chattering, skipping, or squeaking? Don't let streaks or smearing on your windshield compromise your visibility. When it's time to replace your wiper blades, stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts and see our selection. Our professional parts people will even install your new wiper blades while you wait. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast, home of the modern whitetail hunter. And now, your host, Mark Kenyon. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast. Today on the show, I'm joined by Tony Peterson, Torn Miller from the NDA, and Bethany Erb from Pheasants Forever to discuss strategies for hunting whitetails in grassland habitats and how we can save this threatened habitat type across the country. All right, welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast brought to you by First Light. So, it's Conservation Month here on the Wired to Hunt podcast, as you might have heard. And today we are going to talk about conservation. We are also going to talk about hunting tactics. But specifically, we're talking about grass. Yeah, grass. Not the kind that some folks like to smoke legally. Mind you, here in my home state of Michigan, and not the kind that stupidly we plant and mow in our yards. I really want to get away from that. It's my goal to rewild my yard someday and never mow it again, but that's not the point. No, we are talking about the grass out there across the country where deer and birds and rabbits and bugs flourish and where smart deer hunters post up in search of big old bucks. Yeah, grasslands are where. All those things happen. This kind of habitat, it exists just about everywhere across the country in one form or another, from CRP fields in the ag country of the Midwest, all the way to the Great Plains out west and a whole bunch of points in between. And this is some primo ground for wildlife and for deer hunters and for hunters of a lot of other stuff too. But this is also a kind of habitat that is rapidly disappearing. So here's what we're going to do today, my friends. We've got a two-parter for you. In part one, we've got my buddy, the one and only host of the Foundations miniseries, the one and only Tony Peterson, and we're going to spend some time talking with him, a guy who spent a lot of time hunting deer and grassy habitats, and we're going to chat about why both he and I love hunting these kinds of places. We're going to talk about some of our favorite experiences around them, and then we're going to dive into a bunch of strategies and advice for hunting deer in this kind of stuff. So how can you hunt deer in CRP fields, in the plains, in other grassy habitat across the country? That's that's part one. Then, in part two, we're going to dive into the challenges that these kinds of places are facing across the country, some serious challenges, and a new opportunity we might have to help save them called the North American Grasslands Conservation Act. And discuss this 
We're joined by Torn Miller, the Director of Policy for the National Deer Association, and Bethany Erb, the Director of Government Affairs at Pheasants Forever. And let me reiterate just how important this is. By the measure of one report, we've lost about 50 million acres of this habitat in about the last decade to development, crop conversion, fragmentation, fire, and a lot of other stuff. 50 million effing acres. 50 million acres. That's a whole lot of good deer hunting ground and pheasant hunting and nesting grounds and pollinator sanctuary just gone in a blink. What if we could reverse that trend? What if we could slow it down? What if we get some of that good stuff back out there? Wouldn't that be something? Well, that's what we're going to explore today. So if you want to learn to hunt grassy habitat for deer, tune in. And if you want to learn how to save these places too, stick around. So here we go. All right, so I'm here now with Tony Peterson. You might know him. And uh, I do need to I do need to bring one thing up before we get into the meat and potatoes here. Because we actually have not done a podcast. Well, we have, but we haven't talked about this together since the fall and summer where you've been occasionally stepping in for me and covering me on the main Wired Hunt show. And every week, you kind of introduce what's going on. And every week, I get messages from listeners saying, hey, how was the Hopscotch tournament? Oh, hey, how was the Miley Cyrus concert? Oh, hey, how was uh, Pokemon tournament? Tony, when I said you could be part of this podcast, you swore never to tell people what I did in my spare time. I didn't. I forgot. I just. I used to drink a lot. I have a bad memory. And the way you're so excited about this stuff, I figure you want the world to know. Yeah, well, I got a good... Hey, listen, I'm not going to throw Spencer under the bus here, but that Miley Cyrus concert you did with him wasn't that far off how he spent his vacation recently. No, let's be honest now. He did, and this is no joke, just spend his valuable vacation time going to see Billie Eilish and Elton John in concert. Yep. And that wasn't like a single thing. That was two different concerts. Yep. He paid tickets for it to go do that. At the Garden, right? Yeah. Yeah. And then art museums. Yeah. I, I would have to say that the most enjoyable part of my job is when I know that I have to figure out what you were doing <laughs> where you couldn't be here hosting the super important podcast that you have. <laughs> no, I haven't listened to every one of the episodes that you did while I was gone. So who knows what you've said? And probably not every single one people have emailed me about. Does any one of the things that you made up stand out as your favorite that you laughed the hardest at when you oh came up God. with it? Like, well, do you have a favorite thing that you envisioned me doing in your imagination? The, the problem is, is I always hold it up to what you actually did do, which was have a, a yo-yo. <laughs> okay. Well, that was, that was in fourth grade. Yeah. No, no, no. I get it. I, I know. It was a long time ago. But I, I don't know if I can find anything out there that's like, that fits into this category as much as that does. So you actually unintentionally set the bar when you were like 10, that I don't know if I'll ever be able to clear it. Well. I'm glad that you're still shooting to to reach the heights that I once yeah. claimed. Look, I'm I'm tr- I'm an achiever, buddy. <laughs> well, some things just mean a lot to me. <laughs> I'm glad that you're shooting for sky high goals. Uh, what I actually want to talk to you about not only ways to humiliate me, but uh, but I want to talk about a place, a habitat, and a style of hunting that you and I both really love. And 
we were talking about this over dinner. We were eating cheeseburgers. I had a beer. You had a Diet Coke. And I said to you, and I don't think this is the beer talking, I said to you that I would give up the Midwest to hunt in the plains. That's how much I like hunting grassland, plains habitat. What's your take on that? Well, my take is that I understand that sentiment. I would have a hell of a time giving up the deciduous forests of the Midwest that I really, really like. And, it, you know, we're sitting here looking out on the Mississippi River and the bluffs here. And this this area is just so special to me. But I understand. <laughs> like, it's it's a close second for me. The grasslands and, you know, not only for deer. It's so fun w- with deer, right? Like, they're so visible and the states that have a lot of grassland left, they, they give you a lot of land to roam on a lot of times. And I think that's amazing. But I, I just love them for so much more than the deer aspect. You know what I mean? That's, this, that's where I spend my bird hunting time. I was just, you know, just a little bit ago before Minnesota's small game season wrapped up, I was pushing little brush patches on public land, mostly around grassland and CRP, trying to shoot some rabbits and watching pheasants fly out and deer run out and... I just, I think that environment, that habitat is so amazing. So what is it? So uh, if I had to, if I had to choose why, I, or if I had to explain why I like this kind of stuff, I'd have a hard time pinpointing just what it is. Because when I'm, when I think about grassland or open type habitat, you know, it can come in a lot of different forms. It can be big, vast grasslands out West, but it can also be a 50 acre or 20 acre CRP field in Michigan or Ohio or somewhere like that. But across all of those, I think you get two things. You get one, it can be some level of vista, like the wide open space, the view, whether it's 10 acres or 100 miles. You get this this scene that somehow I think, and I, I might be way off my rocker here, but I think there's something like deep in us having been evolved from a species that grew up in like savannas millennia ago. There's something about that wide open space that connects with us. Like we like to be able to see over the next hill and see this vast landscape. That's something that just the the place itself just does it for me. And then second, when you see animals, deer in particular, moving through grass, whether it's CRP or native grasses out in Kansas or Nebraska or whatever, just moving through that stuff and you see their their back line going across or you see their antlers and ears poking out of something. Or if you're in a CRP field in Iowa and it's so tall, you can't see anything but the glimmer of an antler that turns and all of a sudden, holy crap, that's a tine. Mm -hmm. And then a buck steps out out of there. That is just cool. These are not only cool, but they're like rich with wildlife landscapes too. I mean, these are places where I've hunted that have grasslands. I see more deer than almost anywhere sometimes. Yep. Um, So a lot of deer, cool place, great views, very huntable because of the views. I mean, when you think about these places, what do you like about them? Oh, man. I mean, I I totally agree with you on the, just the, you know, I think when you come from the places we come from, you, you don't even recognize your own claustrophobia. And, you know, you go, I love the challenge of the big woods, right? But the hardest part is, you know, you're not going to see very many deer. Like if you do see one, it might be a killable situation, but it's not like you have a very, very high probability of just going out, working your butt off and blanking. And when you get out there where you've got, you know, the ability to see, 
you're, you're like it's like antelope hunting like it's just fun because you know you're going to be in the game at least you're going to see something probably you're not going to blank out in the grasslands and i think that there is something to that of just being able to look and go you know there's so many places national grasslands and big chunks of public land where you step out of that truck and you can walk for miles and so not only can you see them but if you do see them two miles away and they're just a little dot on the horizon you they're still in play and you know how it is when you when you live in a state like Michigan or Minnesota where you're dealing with forty acre properties, thirty acre properties. It's like, man, you know, you, you got a couple hundred yards by a couple hundred yards to work with. It's just a different thing. But I, I just I love, I, I I love that it shows us just how many animals use that kind of habitat. And when you get in there, how different it is than you kind of think. Like when you think about it in your head, you're like, okay, I'm going to go to Kansas or, you know, one of those flyover states and it's going to be full of awesome grasslands to hunt. But it's like, you know, when you're sitting at home, it's just flat. It's kind of featureless. There's no trees. There's no rivers. Like you just, like you fill in the blanks with like the worst case scenario. Right. Then you go out there and you're like, man, this, this topography is actually rolling and there's a drainage here and there's a little patch of cottonwoods down there by the river. And it's just a cool freaking place to be it's amazing what it sucks up like you when you look at it from the road even like you said it might almost look sterile but you get into it and there's a whole lot of life in there yeah and deer well i mean you know and we we talk about this this is why kansas partially is such a destination state right like it's a big buck state anyway people are going to go there but you can find those situations to some extent in Oklahoma, in some of these other states that wouldn't be quite as a destination and then i think you mentioned this earlier in, in in some places in the Midwest and the East, you can find just a CRP field. It's like a mini version of this stuff, but it still brings that kind of habitat. And, you know, I don't, I don't know if this is right or not, but like when you talk about, you, you know, you use Iowa CRP, for example, you know, like I'm always keen on that. If I'm, if I'm hunting public land down there, cause it's. Dude, whenever you, uh, and I apologize for jumping in, but I was just going to say anytime I'm in the Midwest, that's generally more timbered and regular agriculture. If I have access to a place that has that grassland habitat, whether it's in CRP or just natural, I gravitate towards that. Yep. Don't you always gravitate towards yeah. that? You know why? I, th I think this is why. So if you think about, you know, like if you, if you go somewhere and there's a, a soybean field on public land, like there's an outside chance in an early season, they're betting right in there, right? Not real high odds. Like it's, it's okay. Like there might mm -hmm. be deer that start in there, but that's the destination. Yeah. And everybody figures that out. But there's something different about sitting up over a, a big block of CRP. You get up into that tree and you're like, they could be in there now. They could be coming out to there at some point. They're going to just, they're going to use this in so many different ways. It's not just bedding. You know, you'll see them browse through there. I mean, I'll never forget. I, I think it was the first time I ever hunted South Dakota for whitetails. I was just glassing in the hills and they had different prairies and stuff. I was close to the river, so I had some wooded bottoms and stuff, but I was still in like the transition to grassland. Uh -huh. And where I was looking for deer was in the trees, you know, like where you just like, okay, right. I know deer like this stuff. And I kept seeing these deer in these places where I'm like, why are they there? It looks like that deer's browsing away in just grassland, but I know they're not eating that yellow grass. And I remember walking over there like the next morning and looking at it, and there was this little tiny clover sprouting under there, and that's what they were eating. And you're just like, you, you know, I would have never, ever known that. Like, that would have never occurred to me to be a pattern I could play off of. And then you start digging in, and you're like, there's so much going on here. It looks kind of mono landscape, yeah. and it's just different. We, we see the same thing 
like if you want to if you want to realize the value of grasslands like get a bird dog and you just realize like not only are the birds out there but how much how many other critters you jump and how many deer that you see in places where you're like there's just no way like there's no way they're going to be here and then you know how it is when you're following a bird dog along and you just sort of like they're doing their thing and you're kind of working the wind or whatever but a lot of times you just end up on a deer trail like it's just easier walking you're like let's let the dogs do the hard work and then all of a sudden you realize like this this deer trail is like winding its way through here and these deer are using this terrain just like they would bluffy country but it's on such a different scale and i think that's so freaking cool i feel like you've told me a lot of stories where you've been bird hunting in grasslands and blow out a bunch of big bucks and like ooh i need to try to hunt deer hunt this someday dude it's kind of a common thing isn't it it's well it's so common for me that i just spent a weekend hunting <laughs> rabbits and scouting deer on public land in a place that I never in a million years thought I would go, but just seeing what I see pheasant hunting, I'm like, I gotta, I gotta see if I can kill a big public land buck yeah. down here. And it's, it's just grass. So, okay. When I say grassland or grassy or prairie or any kind of habitat like that, where could we find that? I'm, I'm going to start with the list I can think of here and you jump in. I'm thinking parts of Minnesota. I'm thinking parts of Iowa. I'm thinking both the Dakotas, Nebraska, Kansas, Oklahoma. Uh, Eastern Montana, Eastern Colorado, Eastern Wyoming. Uh, I think you could find it in the northern part of Texas. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I, I, you know, this is a this is probably a stretch, but I've even turkey hunted places in northern Missouri where, like, some of the hilltops and stuff are like mini little biospheres of grassland as well. Yeah, you know, I mean, where you get the you know the oaks in the bottoms or whatever. Yep. Um, it's a, it's a mixed terrain. Yep. I mean, that's a whole lot of whitetail country that that's this kind of stuff. And then all the different grasslands that are still around in little pockets and remnants throughout the Midwest where there, there used to be all across that Iowa, Illinois, Indiana, tons of grasslands used to be the short grass barrier, I think is what it used to be Yeah, where there's still little remnants. I mean, one of the coolest things that came out of my back 40 project was when we brought this plant ecologist out to the property out there in Southern Michigan, we went walking around and we came across this ridge side that had a whole lot of different grasses in there and forbs and stuff. And that guy, the ecologist says with, was like shocked at what he saw. He's like, Hey, this is a remnant native prairie that used to be here hundreds and hundreds of years ago. That's been wiped out across the state and across much of the Midwest. Like we've paved it all over. We don't have this stuff almost anywhere. This is like a rare thing. It might be the only place in the County that we still have this. We had this little pocket of grassland, such a cool thing to see. And mm-hmm. funny enough, we tried to improve it. We tried to open up some space for it. And sure enough, that's where both the bucks I killed on the back 40 came out of. So not only is it native, not only is it pretty darn cool, but Hey, it's also where a lot of these deer like to spend time. Well, and it, you know, we, I know this is where to hunt. So we talk about whitetails, but man, you go hunt antelope in a lot of places. You go hunt mule deer in a lot of places, um, I hunted blacktails in Southern California one time and we were hunting in some grassland there. You know, I mean, it, this is, there are a lot of species that love this stuff. Yeah. All right. So, hmm, most memorable grassland type habitat deer story. When I say that, what's the first thing that comes to mind for you over all your years hunting this stuff? And you've been hunting that kind of stuff for a long time, probably since before I was born, right? Man. 
That was a joke, but he, he just yeah. went with it. I'm, tr- I'm trying to ignore you because Mark's been making fun of me for my age the whole time, even though he's only seven years younger than me. You just look 34 years older than me. So. Yeah, because I have 10-year-old twins. Just wait. Just wait, bro. You got those two little boys at home. This shit's coming for you too, man. Anyways, Grimes, what you're saying? And plus, I've hunted a lot harder than you, so oh, that's, that's been it. a lot more that, stressful on me. That must be it. Yeah. That must when, be you, it. when you go out there and you work your ass off on public land, you get some gray hair. <laughs> you're not, I'm not just doing the cushy hunts that you're doing. Uh-huh, uh-huh. <laughs> so anyways, back in 2007. So can I tell you, I, I'm, I'm not having like a, a, a buck I killed come to mind right away. That's fine. But I have this memory. So growing up in southeastern Minnesota like I did, we had, I, I kind of hit sort of the tail end of the pheasant days down there, which means I hit the tail end of the CRP in a lot of places. So when I could start hunting when I was 12, you know, for a while we had some pheasants to work with. We had some deer we'd hunt in CRP and then everything went under the plow and it kind of went away. But I remember we, we had places like we had private places to hunt, but we also just went and hunted public land. It was like, we'd kind of just like, what do we want to do tonight? My dad and I, you know, like we weren't you know, we were hunting anything. So we, we didn't care. It wasn't like we were trophy hunting. We we're just like, we'll have fun. If we go down here to Lanesboro, we hunt this public. We'll have fun. If we go to this private place. And I remember he dropped me off and I, I was probably like 14, 15 at the time. I, I, I couldn't drive yet. And I was in this CRP field and just like no clue what to do. And I remember just sneaking along. I used to still hunt a lot. And I saw this deer and it was like, holy shit, like I never see, like this is amazing. And so I got down in that grass and started crawling closer and closer. And it was a doe. And I remember just like being so scared to peek up. That I'm like, I'm just going to get close. Because, you know, back then it was like we were shooting compounds, but we were shooting like one pin, like fingers, you know, like the peep sight that had a little pinhole through it, uh-huh. like painting your your pins kind of thing. And so it, we were like 20 yards and under kind yeah. of deal. And I remember when I finally got to where I was like, she's got to be right here. And I just like peeked up and she was on the trail I was on like 10 yards away facing me. And, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't going to take a frontal shot. And I just remember like, oh my God, like they're never this close to me. Like this little situation here in this grass. And I, at the time I didn't recognize it. Like I just knew like deer, some deer like CRP, but I've never forgot that. Cause that was like one of the first encounters I had, like on the ground close where I didn't kill her. She busted me and she ran away, but it was like, you, you can actually get that close to them, not sitting in a tree stand, which I hated because I was so impatient, but just to actually go out and do it. And it was just because she was in the CRP, not paying attention. And I had the right wind and the right conditions. And that, I think about that all the time. And it, you know, that was one that got away and it was just a doe. Yeah. There's, there's so many, different hunts even in the short time I, I i think i hunted out in the grassland type habitat for the first time and deer hunted in it in probably 2012 or 13 so it's been less than 10 years but just in that time period i mean many of my favorite hunts not just because of the deer activity but some for the deer activity but also just for the like the ancillary stuff like the stuff around it you know, like I remember one time hunting in a state out there and I was hunting a mixture of like river bottom and grasslands and kind of bluffs and then down in the bottoms. And I remember I was camped out up on these bluffs and like big rolling grasses. And then down beneath me was the river bottom where there was a few trees and some grasses and stuff like that. And I hunted that morning. No, sorry. I glassed the morning. Midday, went down to the bottom, hunting this kind of grassy bottom 
passed on a really nice buck I shouldn't have passed on because it was the first day. Crossed the river, came back up this after dark, going back up, and I just remember climbing the bluff, getting up to my truck, which was parked on this grassy hill. There's nobody else around for miles. It's dark except for just the brilliant stars. And I was sitting there at the truck, popped the tailgate, put on the little backpacker stove, and all you could hear was just the of that little stove burner. And I remember just looking up, hearing that sound, and just thinking, this is this is it. Like, this is what it's all about. I mean, I got to watch a bunch of deer today. I got to sit and just watch a bunch of deer this morning. Then I got to go see deer and have close calls up close, like fun deer hunting in the afternoon. Then I got to sit here in this wide open landscape, and there's not a sound except for the burner of my little stove while I heat up a backpacker meal. And I know tomorrow I can go back and do it all over again. Like this is living, let alone good deer hunting. This is the whole thing. And I, I've just got a lot of experiences like that, that, that keep on bringing me wanting to go out to those places. And, and again, like I said, it's, I like to go to those places where that's the, the majority of the habitat. But then also like when I went and hunt, I hunted Iowa this past year and I was out scouting and looking for different locations multiple different times I was gravitating towards where there was that CRP and lo and behold that the very first morning of my first hunt in Iowa this year really nice buck came stepping out of that CRP could have shot him other really nice buck came down along the side of the CRP two of my best shot opportunities of the whole week came out of that kind of stuff man so it's it's valuable not just for its aesthetics it is and it I think when you talk about that and your your you know recent Iowa hunt and some of your hunts before that there is a there is a connection to big bucks and grass, <laughs> like because when you say that, it reminds me when you know when I drew Iowa in twenty twenty, like I I found three concentrations of bucks down there on that public, and every one of them was in proximity to CRP. I mean it, the one spot, well the two spots that were really good, I was right on CRP. So I might have been you know I was doing something else like maybe hunting a river crossing or something, but it was like you know you got the crossing on one side, you got the CRP on the other. Yep. So important. Okay, so let's talk a little bit of strategy here. If we're going to hunt any kind of grassy type habitat, I guess I'll break it up into two. I'm curious about, A, what are some things you've learned about hunting in and around CRP in a more traditional agricultural Midwest setting? Let's just tackle that first before I go to part two. So part one, what are some best practices you've learned about how you utilize CRP, how that factors into your strategy, how and why you would ever set up around it? Man, I think... I think the thing that's so valuable, I've, I've been really talking about this a lot, writing about this a lot lately, but I'm trying, I'm trying to look at these hunting scenarios and it's like so easy to default to the negatives. Like what's working against me? Oh, the hunting pressure is too high. There's no big bucks in my state, blah, blah, blah. Like we always kind of like, it's like human nature to go negative, but I'm trying to look like what, what works for you there? Like what, what advantage does this specific habitat give you? And man, you know, like when we talked about the, the big wood stuff earlier, part of the reason that's so hard is because, you know, it's lower deer density. You don't, you don't see as many. So you're just like operating off a sign and you're inferring a bunch of stuff, but you don't get a lot of lessons in real time from real deer. Like that's a, that's a gift. You can go in. I mean, I think one of the reasons that a state like Iowa is pretty easy to hunt compared to a lot of states is because you have a good mix of that stuff where if you go in, you don't really know what you're doing. You can set up and observe, still have a hell of a chance to kill one walking down the edge of the field or the, the, the CRP or whatever, but you can see them and go, okay, 
This is what he did a day. He got up out of that patch of brush in the middle of it and he walked down there through that ditch or whatever, yeah. or he came back in this morning and you can, you can run that pattern. I mean, that, that's why when you talk about like a Kansas hunter, a Nebraska hunt, part of the reason that's so freaking fun is you are in the game when you can see them and they're going to tell you like, this is what I did today. I might not do it tomorrow, but I yeah. might. That's such a gift, man. So I, I treat, I treat those situations you know, like obviously they're going to leave a bunch of sign and rubs around there, or you'll find beds or you can walk through there and jump them or whatever, find a lot of sheds in it too. But I treat that like the most important advantage that grasslands and CRP give you is the visibility. Like you get a lot of lessons on what deer like to do just by sitting back and going, okay, show me. And they're going to show you. That's the beautiful part. The funny thing is, is they show you, right? You're, typically if you're elevated, you can see in there. So this visible to you. But from their perspective, they feel completely concealed. Yep. So it's like this best of both worlds where they feel safe, but you can see. There's no other habitat like that anywhere, really, where we can get an advantage while they think they have the advantage. Yeah. I mean, I would say some of the Western whitetails and some sage flats and stuff, you get a similar situation, but it's not like reproducible across, you know, like you, if you find the right situation, you can, but that's a consistent thing in grassland and CRP. So when you find a CRP field of some size, do you typically look at that as, okay, uh, well, let me, when I walk across the landscape, I usually am looking at stuff and then lumping it into some kind of category, kind of categorizes as something. Is this a travel corridor? Is this a food source? Is this a bedding area? So that I can start to make sense of the bigger thing. When you see a CRP field, does that automatically go into, this is probably a bedding area pile or, or how do you think of it? What pile does that go into for you? Um, it's usually starts that way. I mean, that's, that's the easiest yeah. default mode, right? But depending on what kind of grass it is, depending on what kind of CRP it is, you know, how old it is, how many years it's been planted, you know, I mean, if you get some shrubs and stuff in there, you, now you're dealing with some staging area stuff a lot of times. If it's over their head and it's got something they can rub on, yeah, they might bet on one end and walk their way through, but you might get a staging area situation. And, you know, for me, it's just, I, I use it as just like an anchor point. Right. Like you, you know, that deer are going to use it for a lot of different things. They might be betting in there. They probably are. They might be staging there. They might be, you know, using an edge, a hard edge along there to travel. There's, there's going to be a lot of things probably going on. And so you have like multiple things working for you. You know, I mean, it's the same. I look at that, like, that's just a gift for habitat. The same thing is like, you know, if you have a, a soybean field that butts up to a pond, and you, have, like, and you can hang an early season stand there. It's like, okay, well, you got two really good things going on there. With a with the CRP, a lot of times, you know, because of that security cover that you're talking about, you've got betting for sure. You've got what they think are safe travel routes. They can move. They, they're probably going to move in there in light and give you a chance to see them. And they leave a lot of sign wherever they have a chance to leave sign. So there's there's a lot of advantages to it. Now, what about if we were to head west and go to Kansas or Oklahoma to one of these other states where there's more traditional grassland habitat? What are the things you're thinking about as far as advantages and strategic implications, I guess, as far as how you hunt that stuff out there that might be different than a CRP, CRP field in Wisconsin or Iowa? Um, I would say out there, you know, the scale is so vastly different, but you have more visibility typically. That's nice. Um, if you have a tree you have a place they're going to walk by yeah you know like they're just like fish they're going to gravitate to the structure um but i think i think the big advantage is being able to see them the downside if they get into like knee-high tall grass 
and you got to go after them is you better have a good plan. Yeah. <laughs> like you better, but they're decoyable, you know, like there, there's ways to get around it. And you know, the main thing about it is, you know, we, we always talk about like, all right, well, how do you kill this buck in this way? How do you kill a buck in that way? And the thing about, you know, like what you did in Nebraska last year for the show, yeah, it's, it's not easy to kill a buck going out and decoying them in the grassland, but tell me a funner way to hunt. Like, is, yeah. is there a better way to spend your time? <laughs> like there, there isn't. Yeah. And so even though, yeah, it might not be an easy thing. It's just, just sort of like spotting and stalking antelope. Like that's, if you bow hunt them, that is not an easy thing to do, but it sure is fun because you're always in the game. Yeah. So it, I think it offers up one of the most enjoyable types of habitat to work with. Yeah. Now, one of the thing that I know you've utilized in grassland habitats, that's just something I'll throw out there. It's not really related to what you're talking about, but would you say that water factors into your game plan even more in these grassy plains type habitats than elsewhere? Or the Huge. S- yeah. Huge. I always, if I'm in those, that kind of situation where if you, if you think you could look across the landscape and not see a whole lot sticking up out of the ground, I'm always starting with water because there's going to be some kind of different plants there typically. I mean, it depends how they, you know, if it's pastured or whatever, but so you might get some scrub cedars or something or a windmill to tuck into or some, something to work with, but it's just a centralized point, yeah. you know? And it, you, the, the hard part, you know, when you asked me about like, what's my best memory in the grasslands, like one of the things that cur- occurred to me after I talked about it a little bit is a buck I killed in Nebraska one time with a muzzle loader out in the middle of that stuff. And the whole, my whole plan there was just like, get on water and like check these water holes. Cause there's tanks all over for the cattle. So it gives you like, kind of like, okay, I got a route. I got a thing to do. Like, I know, I know they need the water, even if they have a lot of water out here yeah. to work with. So it, yeah, I mean, w- w- what can you get there that's different? That'll work to your advantage. That's a big one. Yeah. Okay. So for hunting those kinds of places, water is going to be something to pay attention to any kind of structure. If it's present is something to think about. Uh, another general thing, if you can get to a high point and watch and observe, take advantage of that whole visibility aspect. That's a great starting point. Get as high as you can or park your truck and stand on top of your truck and watch and glass. I mean, I think this is one of those habitats where, you know, observation stand or observation sitting on your truck for a morning or an evening is very worthwhile, right? To yep. see if there's anything. Is there anything else other than those couple, three things as far as starting points in that kind of habitat? that's worth keeping in mind if you're heading out for your first Oklahoma hunt or South Dakota hunt or Texas yeah. or whatever. Yeah. So I, one thing that's like super important that I had to learn. And so I went out to South Dakota, I think in 2014 and I was hunting mule deer and hunting on the grassland for mule deer. And, you know, I went out there knowing like, this is going to be a tough place to spot and stock, but this is where the mule deer live. And this is just what I'm working with. And so I was, I was out there with my buddy, Eric, and we had a really good hunt. He killed one. I killed one. And so it was like, you know, it's pretty good. We're halfway done. And the, the other two guys in our camp were from Colorado. Well, one was from Colorado, one was from Wyoming. So they're Western hunters. They met us there. We live in Minnesota. So you'd consider us like Eastern hunters, right? And in my head, I had no problem going into a mule deer hunt that way. But after we tagged out, we stuck around for a few days and I just hung out with our other buddies and tried to help them get a deer. And because they're from out west, they wanted to shoot a whitetail. And so they found a concentration of whitetails and they were telling me about it. And I was like, this, I, you know, I saw some whitetails out there, but like, this seems weird. Like, they're like, yeah, there's this creek bottom with these trees in it. And I was like, that sounds like the stuff I hunt. And I went and glassed one day with one of my buddies who had found this spot. And I'm looking at it and there's like eight trees in three miles. 
you know, and it's like one little drainage with like a foot deep right in the center, you know, like a little tiny creek. But to them, coming from the West, they're like, that's good habitat. Right. And there were freaking deer in there. And I would have, like, I would have driven past that and never given it a second thought. Like, if I would have been driving down the road and I saw a 180-incher run there, I'd have been like, that's a fluke. I'm going to keep going. Yeah. But they come from a different place and they're going, that's good habitat. There's these cottonwoods down there. They're relating to it. There's a little bit of dip in the terrain. Uh So when you come from the Midwest or the East... And you're like, okay, I, I know what I know about deer and I know a lot. And then you go out there and you look at this stuff and you go, well, this, this sucks. Like a lot of people get kind of like going into the mountains for elk, like first time you get this feeling of, oh man, like I'm not, I'm not in my home ground. And like, I really actually don't know what's going on. And so you kind of have to reframe what you think about for like good deer cover, because that stuff does not look like where a lot of us come from. Yeah. I can definitely attest to that being. A, a lesson that takes a while to learn, but once you do, it does open your eyes to a whole lot of new possibilities. Yeah. Say. I, th- so. I think it's, you start out with really low confidence and then you just like, well, what else we got to do? And then all of a sudden you find your way in close to one. Cause you lose, a, you use a little bit of the train or he's distracted by a doe and you're like, wow, this is totally doable, but it looks, it's a vastly different environment than where we hunt deer a lot. It is. So question. Do you think that you and I should go hunt in a grassland type state and habitat this year together? Sure. All right. (laughs) Then I think we should. (laughs) I I absolutely think we should go hunt some deer somewhere. Yes. I think we should. Okay. So here's that. That's the good news. The bad news is, and I know I already told you this, but I'm going to say it again because it still shocks me. We are, according to some estimates, losing about a million acres of this stuff every year. Million acres, and in the last, well, I think I think it was two thousand seven. Our next guest will confirm this for him, but I'm pretty sure since two thousand seven, we've lost almost an area the size of the state of Kansas of this type of habitat, getting converted to crops, plowed up, developed over, turned into different things. We're losing this really cool deer hunting habitat, wildlife paradise, and I'm gonna take a leap here and put words in your mouth but i'm guessing you don't think that's cool man i you know as you've pointed out i'm so old (laughs) that i'm like i'm becoming yeah like hyper aware of this stuff or like focused on it differently when i was younger i didn't really give a shit like i didn't understand it never the gravity of why like when i was growing up my dad would go shoot pheasants with with his brother-in-law every night during the season they would go and it, like, I just took it for granted that that opportunity was just there. And by the time I got into it, it was already like, we're, we're losing our spots to hunt and it was going away. And, you know, in high school, I ended up going down to Iowa more because they had more CRP. And I had like the gravity of the fact that like these birds that I love, these pheasants, they need, I think they say 40 acres of nesting habitat per section or something, something like that. And when you don't have that, they're just gone. You don't like, you might have a little few fringe birds here and there. Somebody might babysit a little, little population of them, but generally the opportunity disappears. And you look at that and go, man, that's, that sucks. Like I, I get what, you know, like I get why it went away and I get why we're losing it now. Like I understand this is a big issue, but when you look at like everything that uses it and everything that needs it, and then you look at some of the erosion stuff. Like I, I grew up, I know you love to fish and trout fish, you know, I grew up fishing, lots of trout streams like that's what we did 
and then you see how it changes with the runoff and how long it takes the runoff to get through there. And you watch some of these streams you grew up fishing and they were brooks, brook trout streams when you were 10 and now they're brown trout and suckers. You know, like you see these changes and part of it is tied to the fact that this, this uh, habitat that we had, you know, these grasslands that we had for 10,000 years, they're gone. And we, we have the opportunity to bring some of them back or to at least, you know, stop the bleeding a little bit, man. I, I'm all for it. I feel like, uh, and, and, and this is like a dead horse that we're beating over and over because it's cliche, I guess, but I keep on thinking about it. Like having kids just changes the level of significance, I guess, with these things even more. Like it's one thing for us not to get to enjoy them or see them or experience them. But for some reason, at least for me, it feels like a different level of just uh, shittiness that my kids wouldn't necessarily be able to see that or experience that. Like all these stories we just told, if there's half as much country like that left for them 20 years from now, when they want to go out and do this thing, that'd be pretty, that'd be pretty tragic. Yeah. Well, yeah. And there's going to be implications way beyond that for some game species and probably, probably a whole lot of, well, you know, butterflies and things that songbirds we're not really thinking like we're not focused because <laughs> we don't shoot them and eat them right uh but they're yeah it's not great no no it's not so i guess that <laughs> i guess the one silver lining here is that there are people that are trying to change this there are groups that are trying to change this there are opportunities for us to get involved in ways to sl- stop that bleeding or to actually kick start things back in the right direction and and that's what the next half of this episode is going to be about tony we've got two great guests torn miller and bethany herb who are going to walk us through a potential solution a step in the right direction a way we can try to get back moving in the right direction so should we get to that yep Now, a lot of you guys are familiar with the old hunting tradition of eating, you know, some organ, the heart or a chunk of liver off the first animal you kill. I had that when I was a little kid and it was a big deal. Organ meats were always prized by frontier people who knew the importance of getting a lot of different minerals and nutrients. And as often is the case, those guys were on to something because organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. And you can get the same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil made exclusively from regeneratively raised, grass-fed, and finished cattle. Heart and Soil's unique freeze-drying process means all those important nutrients are trapped in ensuring you experience every one of the benefits of nature's superfood in a clean, convenient, taste-free capsule. Find out more at heartandsoil.co and make sure to use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. That's heartandsoil.co. Use the code MEATEATER. We've all seen plenty of gadgets and fads come and go, but here's one product that stood the test of time, Seafoam Motor Treatment. Lots of hunters and anglers know that seafoam helps engines run better and last longer. And it's really simple. When you pour it into your gas tank, seafoam cleans harmful fuel deposits that cause engine problems. I'm talking common stuff like hard starts, rough engine performance, or lost fuel economy. Seafoam is an easy way to prevent or overcome these problems. Just pour a can into your gas tank and let it do its job. 
Now, you probably know someone who's used a can of seafoam to get their truck or boat going again, because people everywhere rely on it to keep their trucks, boats, and small engines running the way they should the entire season. So, help your engine run better and last longer. Pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more. All right, with me now today, I've got Bethany Herb and Torin Miller. I appreciate you both joining me. And to get us started, Bethany, could you give me a really quick introduction to what exactly your role is at Pheasants Forever? And then what brought you to this kind of work? Why is it that you wanted to work at an NGO doing conservation? Sure. Um so hello, everyone. My name is Bethany Erb. Uh, I'm the Director of Government Affairs for Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever. I'm based in Washington, D.C. I've been working on uh, conservation, ag, environmental policy uh, on Capitol Hill for over 15 years now. Um, why I got into this line of work is, um, I, you know, I grew up on a ranch in southwest Montana. Uh, I grew up in the outdoors. I love the vast open spaces uh, and uh, my career my childhood brought me into the career that I'm in today, where I work on national policy that focuses on conservation and more specifically grasslands. Okay. Torin, same question to you. What are you doing at the NDA these days and why are you here? Yeah. So my name is Torin Miller. I'm the director of policy at the National Deer Association. Uh, I actually came to the Deer Association uh, via the merger of the Quality Deer Management Association and the National Deer Alliance. Um, I worked over at the National Deer Alliance before, although I had um, intern experience both with QDMA and the Alliance before, uh, you know, getting a job here and working. But um, born, raised, and still live in central Pennsylvania and grew up in Pennsylvania's very strong hunting camp culture, uh, particularly uh that's particularly strong throughout the northern part of our state. And so always had a really strong connection with the woods and waters. Um, very passionate about uh, the wildlife and, and the landscape. And so that led me to an education in wildlife and fisheries. Uh, and while going through that process, I realized that I had a, a really strong interest in human dimensions and the policy side of things. And I saw a real opportunity there to, to make a real on the ground difference. And so that led me to law school and um, to focus a little bit more on the legislative side of things and how laws and policies are formed and influenced. And so I ended up here at the uh, National Deer Association, focusing on all of our policy and advocacy efforts, everything, you know, from the grassroots level to direct outreach to, to lawmakers, um, everything from local and state level up to big federal issues. And so I get to work every day with with folks like Bethany and organizations like hers on, on big conservation uh, topics. And fortunate enough that uh, folks look to us to engage on cool projects and initiatives like the uh, North, North American Grasslands Conservation Act. So, yes, you, you said it right there. The North American Grasslands Conservation Act is the, is the latest issue on each of your to-do lists these days. Uh, when we say grasslands, when we talk about any kind of grassland-related habitat that's covered by this potential bill, what are we talking about? What, when, how, do, how do you guys define that ecosystem? Where is this stuff? Is this just a Montana and Wyoming thing, or is this applicable to someone in Michigan or Pennsylvania? 
Uh, Bethany, do you want to jump on that first? Sure. Um, that's a really great question. And I'm going to apologize in advance to the biologists listening um, to this podcast because I'm not. So I apologize if I get some of the terminologies incorrect. Um, we are looking at a wide swath of land across the U.S. Um, this isn't just a Great Plains issue. And so we, it's, it's in name at this point, it's the North American Grasslands Conservation Act, but it also includes the sagebrush biome. And grasslands include every form of grassland, coastal grassland, savanna. Um, and so it, it's a huge area of the United States because almost every state has an area that would be considered either currently or historically grasslands. Torn, what about specifically in deer country. I mean, the first thing that comes to mind when I think of grasslands and I think of how that is relevant to whitetail deer is all the CRP ground we've got across the Midwest. Is is that the kind of thing that comes to mind for you when you think specifically deer? So that's absolutely like the first um, type of cover that deer hunters would think of. And not all CRP is, is true grassland or true native grassland, but that's sort of the cover types that we're talking about. But um, certainly throughout the, the Midwest and pushing farther west, you, you, I mean, you've experienced those landscapes, Mark, you're thinking sort of pothole, pothole prairie and then native uh, tall, short, mixed grass prairie or things that have historically been native prairie. In the southeast, you're thinking things like uh, pine savanna. Um, so these ecosystems are really, as Bethany said, all over the country and really all throughout our deer habitat. Um, and pretty much anywhere throughout the U.S., uh, you're going to be somewhere where there there is or was native grassland at, at one point. I think um, generally when we think grassland or sagebrush, we certainly get the picture of Western landscapes in our head just because it's sort of the iconic nature of those uh, landscapes. But there are uh, grasslands throughout the South, Southeast, Midwest, uh, Mid-Atlantic, and even in some cases throughout the Northeast and, and Northwest. Yeah. And uh, I, I can say from at least anecdotal experience uh, to what you said, Torrin, I've seen these types of habitats in one form or another all across the country. And at least from my own personal experiences out there, either hiking through them or hunting near them or in them, they're typically pretty prolific as far as how wildlife utilize them, whether that's deer, birds, bugs, the whole nine yards. Uh, but Torin, when you guys at the NDA look at this issue and you start talking about why do grasslands matter, why do these types of habitats matter for deer or deer hunters, which is obviously your constituency base, uh, why? why? Why does this matter to deer hunters? Why do you guys, why are you taking a stand in support of this kind of habitat? Um, can you kind of elaborate on the importance of this kind of stuff for the critters that we're so passionate about? Yeah, so... Um, at the National Deer Association, we're interested in, in all deer species, so whitetail, mule deer, blacktail, and all the subspecies. And so, um, as I mentioned, these grasslands are found throughout the country, and so they impact all of these deer species in, in one way or another. And certainly um, throughout the west and the sagebrush region, you're thinking mule deer, and then throughout the southeast, you have a very strong whitetail culture. And so these habitats are critically important to all deer species, uh, depending on the region. And um, grasslands by nature, especially native grasslands, um, provide incredible amounts of forage for deer um, in, in the grasses and forbs that are growing there. Uh, they provide incredible amounts of cover for deer. 
um, and anybody who's spent enough time around these types uh, of habitats and who's hunted in those habitats um, certainly know the the key in on them. And you know, as a deer hunter, as you mentioned, there's um, not much better or not much more of a picture or a picture that comes more to mind than like a big CRP field uh, separated by like a wooded draw or something. Sign and that's me because up. it's we just yeah exactly we know that they're just such great deer habitat and so that's where a lot of our interest comes from um is is the conservation and creation of excellent deer habitat both when we're talking cover and forage um but outside of really focusing on deer and deer hunting uh grasslands provide just a wide array of um environmental services uh you know including carbon sequestration water filtration um, excellent habitat for non-game uh, or non-game species. Um, excellent, you know, cover and forage for pollinators and all those sorts of things. Yeah, Bethany, would you have anything to add to that? Especially, you know, on that topic of outside of just deer. I mean, these are important landscapes for a whole suite of of critters and, and life, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think Torin summarized it beautifully. Um, I wanted to reference something, a program that you mentioned earlier, which was CRP and the Conservation Re- Reserve Program. It, and that has been from a, a, a bird hunter perspective and from our organization, uh, very, very critical um, to good habitat for upland birds. And so we wanted to do something um, that would be complementary to CRP. And so we started to talk uh, with Torin and other groups about doing something a little more broad um, at, at, at a new agency. I know we're going to get into the policy a little bit further down the road, but uh, CRP is administered through the USDA Department of Agriculture. And we started to look to do something at the Department of Interior. And um, as Torin mentioned, too, you know, we're, we're at a time on Capitol Hill right now where uh, legislators want to make policy as it uh, relates to climate change. And we believe that that grasslands are a critical part of this discussion. We see a lot of policy coming out about forestry, um, important part of the policy discussion, uh, but grasslands definitely have their place. Uh, carbon capture, the, the potential and the value that they bring or have always brought and could continue to bring or bring more um, is really necessary when we talk about creating um, climate policy. Yeah. So you guys are telling me that grasslands are good for deer, they're good for pheasants, they're good for quail, they're good for bugs, they're good for hunters, and they're good for the environment. Uh, that all sounds good. That sounds great. But I was out in Iowa. I saw grasslands. I see some grasslands here in Michigan. When I go out west, I see grasslands. It seems like we've got a lot of grass. Is there a problem here? I, I'm, what, what's, what, what is the problem? I, see that, I say that jokingly because I know actually that grasslands are maybe one of the most imperiled ecosystems across the world, I think I've read before. But can can you elaborate on that a little bit, Bethany, as far as what the trend has been with grasslands? Because I mean, like I just kind of jokingly said, sometimes it can feel like there's plenty of it, but there's a whole lot less than there used to be, isn't there? There is. Um, and we are kind of, we're working with different partners right now to come up with an exact assessment of how much is lost per year. Right now we use um, a metric that we're losing um, about, we've already lost about the size, every 10 years, the size of Kansas um, of grasslands. And I can't tell you right now without having my resources in front of me how much we're losing, but we know that we are losing a lot of acres of grasslands. And 
they're in places where there's a ton of urban sprawl, for example, uh, where I'm from in Southwest Montana, you know, places like the Gallatin Valley are just expanding uh, rapidly and people want to live on these landscapes. They're beautiful. And when, I mean, I'm just talking about habitat change or destruction in terms of urban development, but when, when you subdivide a field that was once a grassland, whether it was cattle ranching or just an open field for, you know, whatever, like, you're disrupting migration routes. Um, it's all sorts of uh, ecological disruptions happen when there's a subdivision. We're also talking about farmland conversion. And, um, you know, there's a lot of pressure on these really special places uh, that are great for different forms of wildlife. Um, and so we're, we're just looking to do something that keeps more of these special grasslands places intact. Yeah. Yeah, I, I read somewhere that we lose a million acres of this habitat every year. Um, and like you said, that since 2007 is about the size of Kansas gone. Um, and so am I right that a lot of what has happened recently, and, and you kind of alluded to this with that crop conversion, is some grounds that were protected in CRP were then converted back to row crops. And that's been an increasing trend in recent years with prices and different things like that. Um is that something that is this is well we're going to get into this bill i guess a little bit more maybe maybe i maybe i retract my question maybe i'm getting ahead of myself <laughs> um torn i guess let me let me pivot and just ask if you would have anything to add when it comes to the problems we're seeing well, i guess when i mentioned the crp thing i remember talking to kip adams the director of conservation chief conservation officer there over with you guys at nda and he talked about back in like 2015, 16, 17, when we were worried about some potential trends with white-tailed deer, one of the things we were worried about was this loss of habitat. A tremendous amount of CRP was converted back to croplands. Can you elaborate on that? Can you speak to any other things we're seeing along those lines um, and how you guys see that impacting whitetails? Yeah, so a lot of the concerns outside of even just um, habitat conversion with, you know, uh, suburban sprawl and um, landscape use changes. Um, we're seeing that a lot of the native grasslands are, are seeing the invasion of non-native species, which are negative for a lot of reasons, um, both in their value to, to native wildlife and the overall landscape. But um, we're seeing a lot more wildfire risk, both in sagebrush and grasslands with the introduction of uh, more non-native or invasive species of grasses and forbs. Um, they're less fire resistant. And so when they're introduced to these landscapes, these landscapes become more fire susceptible. Um, and so we're seeing destruction in that sense um, too. And then we're just seeing, as you mentioned, with farming and grazing practices, um, we're not doing enough to incentivize uh, folks who own these lands as working lands to keep them in their sort of natural and native grassland state. And so there are absolutely ways that we can keep these landscapes as working landscapes and still provide all the, the wildlife and environmental benefits that they have. Uh, but we need to provide incentives and knowledge um, for people to do that. And so nothing like this really exists. And even with the the CRP program, it's been um, severely under-enrolled in recent years and underfunded. And so this this piece of legislation, and, and again, we'll get into some of the more specifics, but it, it tackles that by uh, helping to encourage folks who own 
um, lands that are in grasslands. And it's like something like 85% of our, our grassland ecosystems are privately owned. Um, it's giving them the tools and incentives to, to keep these lands intact outside of, you know, urban development and outside of um, crop usage and, and sort of conversion for, for agriculture or grazing. Yeah. Um, so, so Bethany, do you want to kind of help us take that next step then? Cause I think you've been pretty um, integral in, in driving the direction of the North American grasslands conservation act. Can you, can you spell out for us exactly what this is and how it's going to help us solve the problems that we just discussed? Sure. Um, and the first thing I'll, I'll put out there are two words. Torin already said them, but I'm going to say them again because they're the most important part of this discussion. Voluntary and incentive-based. So we at Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever have a long history of working in partnership with landowners. And um, we do not agree with taking any sort of regulatory approach that makes life more difficult uh, for private landowners. And that we want to construct policy that is complementary and incentive-based to grazing operations. So the concept that we're talking about in name now is the North American Grasslands Conservation Act, uh, which includes sagebrush. So it didn't didn't quite make the formal title, but it's in there. And um, we've worked very closely with uh, Senator Ron Wyden from Oregon, his wonderful staff, to start putting pen to paper on what this legislative language will look like. And so um, as we're talking about it right now in draft form, it would be quite similar to NACA, the North American Wetlands Conservation Act. So NACA is a program um, that's administered at the Department of Interior uh, by the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, and it's a grant program. Um, and there, uh, and fee, uh, sorry, a grant program um, and easement program for wetland conservation on private land. It's been torn right now. I can't remember how many years NACA has been around, but. I think it's over over 30 or 40, um, very, very effective increasing waterfowl production numbers. And so we started to take a look and say, okay, when just looking at like grassland birds, like all of them are in decline and wetland birds are not, what's different? And we recognized that there was policy out there, specific policy to protect wetlands and habitat. And so we started to say, well, let's model that and let's do it for grasslands. So we're looking at a much bigger um, swath of land than wetlands. Um, and so it's going to be a program that uh, will be, we're looking somewhere between 200 and $300 million per year, every year, um, an authorization that would go through an annual appropriation cycle. And it would, again, we, you know, we don't have the language, it hasn't been introduced yet, so it's still being drafted. It could look a lot of different ways, but it would include um, a tribal component, which would be unique. And so that tribes could participate in this um, just pretty incredible program and, and do habitat improvement on, on tribal land. Um, that kind of is one of the more unique angles that we've taken and had um, support from um, se several different tribal organizations. And the, um, as it, as it relates to NACA, um, the, the grant program would allow for different um, flexible landowner based approaches. So I think Torn mentioned earlier, like wildfire uh, prevention. So, prescribed fire would be one of them. Um, you could do things like um, uh, rancher, uh, like educational programs on different, um, you know, ranching transition uh, plans. You could uh, perhaps do like different fencing projects that could be funded through this. Um, perhaps some water quality uh, or water management, irrigation 
plans. And it also allows for easement. Um, at this time, the language is not being considered for any sort of fee acquisition, but easements that could be held either by the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service or independent land trusts. We know there are a lot of independent land trusts um, that work throughout almost every state, and they hold easements, they monitor easements. And a lot of times that's a more comfortable approach for landowners that maybe don't want a government agency on their property. So when an independent land trust holds the easement, um, that sometimes is just a more comfortable approach for landowners. So we're we're trying to construct a flexible program uh, that's compatible with grazing and complementary to. Um, it would it would function in conjunction with USDA programs like CRP, but it has the added flexibility of NACA that some of the USDA programs don't have. I'd also add uh, that uh, USDA conservation programs, um, there's more demand than there is money. So we see a need to do something in addition to the Farm Bill programs and like the idea of having it at the Department of Interior. Um, and so that's kind of the direction that we're moving. Um, as I'd mentioned, Senator Wyden has worked very closely with us on this. And while I can't speak for him, um, his staff has, you know, expressed, you know, a lot of concern for wanting to do something um, to help the farming and ranching community, compatible with ranching operations. But they're also very interested in what it does um, for climate policy. And so we've been pretty fortunate to have him lead this effort. And right now, uh, we're really working hard to generate additional Senate support so that at some point, hopefully in the next couple months, we can have a bipartisan bill introduction. So, so real quick, before we get into that which is like the actual actions that are happening to make this a possible reality. I want to clarify one thing as far as the, the types of actions that this bill would uh, allow or would, would create with the, with the CRP program, the way that, you know, to oversimplify that works with a, a landowner, a, let's say a farmer, a rancher, a farmer says, okay, I'm going to put these 200 acres of my land out of crop production and into crop reserve it will be a contract of some number of years in which I can't plant corn or beans. Instead, I will plant this grassland blend or whatever. And in compensation for that, the government pays me a certain amount of money so that he makes money off of this land, just like he would if he was planting corn, but instead he's planting wildlife habitat. So to oversimplify, that's the general gist of CRP. It sounds like with this, it would not necessarily be like contracting land to come out of production. Instead, it's going to be hey, we will pay you to do an action, a habitat improvement of some kind, a habitat improvement project of some kind, and we'll give you X amount of dollars for that action. Am I am I reading this right? Is that what you're describing here? Or will there yeah. also be more CRP program type things where they'll say, hey, we can also pay you to take this out of production and contract it into this type of deal as well? Is it, which is that? Um, your earlier assessment um, to pay you for an action. I mean, most of these lands that we're looking at are currently not in ag production or sorry, not in crop production. Ranching, yes, but would be able to maintain. The idea is to is to keep kind of establish what's already there. Now, as we get a little further along, um, could it be that the language does include if uh, conversion back to native? That is a possibility. Uh, we just haven't haven't gotten to that point yet. Okay. That makes sense. So I'm a landowner. I ranch cattle or I do whatever. This program would open up a pool of funds that I could then access potentially by doing good things for my land. So I'm, you know, I'm a rancher, landowner. It's 
tight when it comes to money already. This is a way to buffer my bottom line, help me pay the bills, and also do something good for the land and the wildlife out there. That's what we're doing here, right? Exactly. So if you're a landowner and you wanted to do some prescribed fire, right? Like you could then receive a NAGA grant to contract and, you know, for fire management. And that would be paid for a good habitat improvement, probably improve the infrastructure of your ranch. You know, you're not going to be set on fire. Uh, Everything's going to look a lot better. So yes, broadly habitat improvement projects. um, And as I mentioned too, easement. So that's other another component. Now, do you anticipate this being just um, accessible by large landowners or landowners that are currently in agriculture? Or is this something where somebody who lives in Kansas and owns 200 acres to hunt deer on, would they possibly be able to access these grant funds to do improvements on their land like you're describing, like prescribed fire or, or something else? Sure. Yeah, we don't have any... Um size base. I think it, it'll be similar to NACA. The, the project will be ranked and selected accordingly, um, but there's no size limitation or restriction. Cool. Torin, from a whitetail perspective, when you and Nick and anyone else in the team, Kip, who's who was looking at this project and this potential bill, when you look at this and you read through how would this impact deer and deer hunters, um, and when you when we talk about you know the the language here and the projects that can help fund, is there anything else that stood out to you as is why this is a win for deer and deer hunters? Why this is something you guys wanted to stand up for? Yeah, Mark, as you, as you, I think you said earlier, and it's accurate, grasslands are like our most imperiled ecosystem on the continent, and so we're losing more grasslands than any other habitat type um, in North America, and so. When you're losing that significant habitat of any type of habitat, it's something to be concerned about. But when it's a habitat type that the deer across the country rely on, you know, it certainly shows up large on our radar. Um, and so the act, as Bethany said, provides um, voluntary incentive-based um, measures to help pr- protect and conserve these resources. Um, it aligns perfectly with the work that we're doing on the 30 by 30 initiative, which I know you've covered. Um, which is to help uh, conserve 30% of the nation's lands and waters by 2030. Um, Again, it aligns really well with the climate work that we're doing. And then from just like a very much on the ground, um, you know, type habitat management work. um, As I said earlier, these these lands are important to deer for both cover and forage, uh, but it also incentivizes folks to use uh, prescribed fire to remove invasive woody species um from from these landscapes um it, it incentivizes people who have uh a grasslands on their property to keep them as grasslands rather than convert them to you know housing developments or or row crops or something like that and so there's a lot of really cool um provisions in the language um and it sort of outlines as bethany said uh, projects are ranked and so there the the bill um directs uh, councils and, and the like to sort of outline and prioritize different projects. But some of those priorities, as I said, are prescribed fire, um, invasive species management, um, restoration of, of cropland and especially marginal cropland. So the cropland that's not incredibly productive, 
Um, and then areas that are, are prioritized are those that provide significant ecological benefits or areas that uh, provide habitat for at-risk species. And so all these things are incredibly good on-the-ground incentives, but um, which we're absolutely interested in and are incredibly important for deer. But from a, even a larger sort of sky-high uh, perspective, this does so much more than just um, local on-the-ground work, too. It seems like a no-brainer. This seems like a win-win. This is a win for animals. This is a win for the environment. This is a win for ranchers and farmers and landowners. Uh, so as a average American citizen, I might be sitting here thinking, man, this is a slam dunk. This should happen right away. Why aren't we doing it? Um, but I remember in fifth grade or second grade or whatever it was, I remember watching this film on the TV about I'm just a bill and I'm sitting here on Capitol Hill <laughs> and um, I know there's a, there's a whole lot of steps. Yes. Yeah, there's a lot of steps that stand in the way from this seemingly good idea to someday being a reality. Uh, Bethany, can you, can you take me to Capitol Hill? Can you walk with me on this bill to explain what, where things stand right now and what has to happen for this to become reality? Sure. Um, I love the schoolhouse rock reference. That's so good. Um, (laughs) I mean, the first thing that we had to start with was a groundswell of interest, right? And so Tora and NDA were very early partners that uh, joined up with us, the National Wildlife Federation, Zero is about conservation partnership. They came together and said, all right, we need to do something. And so we began um, building a coalition of people interested in doing something for grasslands like a year and a half ago. Uh, or doing something more for grasslands, I should say. And uh, we do have a website. It's www.actforgrasslands.org, where you can kind of keep track of our progress and some of the stuff that's been out in the media. Um, and so we, you know, the first first step was to, to form this coalition to get basically like a, a, a union together of, of conservation groups that said, yes, we need to do this. Um, to, and to work through um, conversations with the agriculture and ranching community to say, okay, how do we do this so that it really is compatible with what landowners want to do? Like, you know, because this isn't going to function if it's not like and compatible and additive to a ranching operation. So got to make sure we got that right. We've worked very hard to do that. Um, and then to start recruiting interest on Capitol Hill. And it depends on who you're talking to and where you're from. Like grasslands have um, an appeal for different reasons. If you're an urbanite interested in climate policy, there's the angle. If you're uh, a rancher who um, you know wants to make some infrastructure improvements to the ranch um, and is going to get paid to do it, like that's appealing. If you're conservationist, like Torn and I, two groups, like wildlife habitat, there's your angle. So you start having different conversations in different ways with different members of Congress. We found that the Senate was a little more interested in this idea in the beginning. Uh, We do have some members of the House of Representatives that are interested. Um, Just for, you know, the start, we've kind of put our energy into the Senate. So again, we've got, now we've got a legislative language that's pretty close to being ready to be introduced. Uh, We're working with members of the Senate to have a bipartisan introduction. Hopefully that will take place you know, in the next month or two. And then we go through a process of recruiting co-sponsors for the bill, getting a house companion, um, and then likely it would go through regular order. So it would 
you know, be assigned to in the Senate um, Environment and Public Works Committee, EPW, gets a hearing, gets voted out. Like, I'm not going to go through the whole schoolhouse rock process, but there are a <laughs> lot of different steps. <laughs> there are a lot of different steps and there are different, sometimes the steps aren't so straightforward. It's not as linear as schoolhouse rock makes it sound. It could be included in a bigger package at the end of the year. If say, for example, in the fall, there's a broad wildlife package that comes together. Well, this could be part of it. So we've got a lot of different plays and we keep watching to see kind of how things are trending and which way we can go. Um, I will say that what we've been very careful about doing at this point is that we aren't asking our members to take action on things when there's not really an actionable item. And so in September earlier this year, we had a call to action for people to call their member of Congress and tell them they wanted a, a North American Grasslands Conservation Act. That was wildly successful. Um, we had many members of the House and Senate write us back and say, okay, we hear you. You know, How do we engage on this concept? Um, and we haven't issued another call to action since then because we want to make sure that we are respectful um, of our membership time and energy. And we don't want people making a call when there's not really a time to move the needle. So if you, if our members are, you know, the, our communications say, you know, the time is now, pick up the phone, make a call, send an email. It's because the time really is now. And there might be more than one inflection point. There probably will. But we're not going to ask people to pick up the phone or make a call when it's not really a time to do so. And we won't do things that's just, you know, clickbait, like trying to scare people or entice people into doing something when, you know, we as lobbyists and, and government affairs experts like, no, like, oh, this isn't a real threat. But if it is a real threat or if it is a real time to move, we're going to let you know. As a just as a as a citizen, Bethany, like just as a regular person, like take off your job hat and put on your just ham hey, and American hat and you care about wild places and wild animals. How do you go about vetting those things? Cause you just described a situation that I think a lot of people are in these days, which is we get a million emails from all sorts of different groups. If, if we're tapped into this world, we, we hear about a thousand different threats and problems and, and many of them are real and true and concerning, but how do you, individually sort through all this? How do you choose what to take action on and what is important versus what heck isn't important enough? I'm just curious, like being a person who also works in this world, how have you gone about trying to figure that out? Because I worry about, you know, issue fatigue and people kind of like the boy that cried wolf effect happening. And eventually people just stop paying attention or we get so sick and tired of the bad news that we just turn to video games or basketball games or whatever. I mean, how do you deal with that? Yeah. Uh, well, that's been a really important thing for us is to make sure that our credibility, right? Like our credibility with our membership, like we don't use scare tactics and we don't ask people to do things uh, when they can't really move the needle. And that it really comes down to just like we have people in the ground, myself and my colleagues um, and Torin and his colleagues and others in the conservation community that are here. We are tracking this stuff in real time. We are having the conversations with staff on Capitol Hill. Like you're reading the tea leaves every single day. And then we kind of make an assessment, like, is this going to move? Is this, does this have real traction? I mean, you see a lot of different things. It's not that these meetings or conversations aren't taking place, but you really kind of have to have just a gut instinct on like, does this really have momentum to, to happen or to inflict harm or change? And then you just have to use your professional assessment and say, okay, yeah, this is, 
this is really a thing that's going to happen. We need our members to pick up the phone now. And if we're like, no, this, you know, sure, this bill was introduced, but it's really not going anywhere, then we can make that a confident assessment. Then we don't ask our members to call to action. Like we don't, we don't use clickbait and be like, be afraid now. Like we just don't think that's fair. And it fatigues people. It really does. That was a good word. Um, so we're, we've been very cautious as a group, uh, as a coalition that's working um, towards this effort to make sure that we communicate authentically um, and only when, you know, there's real progress or really something happening so that we don't fatigue our members and that we maintain our trust level with the people that are following us and, and really want to help us and engage. Now, what about for just people like me just sitting here at home? who get these emails and to hear these calls to action. And, you know, what's your recommendation for the average American out there who's trying to decide, like, how do I make sense of all these different things coming down the line? Which ones do I take action on? When is it important to take action? I mean, should we try to tackle every single thing we hear about or do we need to pick and choose? Like, what's your, if you have any advice for just the average person who's caring about these things and wants to help, but sometimes feels overwhelmed or feels like, I don't know how to make a difference. I can chime in here too, Bethany, if if that's all right. But um, Mark, I think it comes down to finding an organization that you just align with and that you trust. And so if you go to the coalition website, the actforgrasslands.org website, you'll see all of the groups that have formally endorsed this legislation. And one thing that's really cool to me is the broad range of groups on there. And so there are some names that absolutely make sense. Um, or that folks listening to this podcast would know. And then there's some groups that they probably wouldn't and who aren't historically, um, you know, in this sort of hunting conservation space. But we've all worked incredibly well together uh, to get this act where it is. But, um, you know, some of the names, of course, were on there and Pheasants Quail Forever, Backcountry Hunters and Anglers have endorsed, uh, TRCP, Isaac Walton League, National Wildlife Federation, and others. Those are just some that, you know, your listeners are probably familiar with. But I think it's finding an organization that that you align with and that you you trust. And so our coalition um, is sort of has two meetings. We have a, a meeting that happens weekly um, with sort of the policy folks that uh, you know update each other on things that are going on in the hill and any movement and, and next steps and outreach and all that sort of stuff. But then there's also a communications meeting where the communication staff from each of our organizations meet and sort of um, strategize how we're talking about this and when it's necessary to take action. And so um, every step that we make with this is deliberate and it's thought of or thought out for those reasons is that we don't want to fatigue our members across the board. And so uh, you're not going to hear from any one of our individual organizations until it's really go time. And I can speak for the Deer Association, but uh, Lindsay Thomas, who has been on your your show multiple times, uh, Mark is, uh, he runs a tight communication ship here at the Deer Association. And so you are not going to see anything, um, especially on the federal level or anything that goes out to our full membership, unless it's, it's important and it's go time. And so, um, that's how, it's just how we operate. And I think that's a lot, how a lot of the other organizations operate too, including Bethany's group is that, um, we're very cognizant of, um, the fatigue that's going on or cognizant of not cluttering inboxes. And so uh, for listeners, you know, I, I get that you get the stuff coming in from a lot of different organizations, but um, I think it just comes down to finding that one organization that, that you feel really good about 
or, or finding the two or three that you feel really good about uh, and that you trust them that when you're getting something from them, that it's really important, that it's really time, time to take action. And there is um, a, a place to take action on the actforgrasslands.org web, website. Uh, when you get to the website, just click the take action tab and there is a, a populated form there. And while we're not actively pushing that right now, uh, that form is there if you uh, feel so desired to take action and, and to let your uh, lawmakers know that you support this effort. Yeah. W- would you add anything to that, Bethany? I think Torin summarized it very well. Um, and we are broadly, I mean, it's not just related to conservation, like so many different media blasts and I mean, we communicate all the time, all day. We're messaged on like every single thing that's going on in the world. And it's just feels overwhelming. It's like, oh my gosh, like what problem do I pick to get involved with? (laughs) It's not just related to conservation. It's related to everything. And I think myself as just a citizen, like I just don't even know where to get worried sometimes. And I I live and work in Washington, um, but I am zeroed in on conservation policies. So like when my family calls and they're like, what's going on with like healthcare? I'm like, I have no clue. I don't follow it. Like I'm zeroed in on a very specific niche. Um, and I, I think that's kind of what I would relay to members too, is like, find your niche, like it, or the listeners, like, you know, if it's grasslands policy, um, you know, follow your trusted organization that really focuses on grasslands. If it's fisheries, you're probably going to be looking at different organizations and news sources. But, you know, I personally just kind of have to filter my areas of concern or of conservation concern um, because it is really broad. Yeah. Uh, So wrapping things up here, then you've mentioned that, you know, there was a period of a year, year and a half ago or whenever it was when we were kind of putting this coalition of supporters together that you had to get some action going. Uh, But the bill has not been introduced yet, and I know it's important not to push people to action until it's really go time. Uh, Where where do we stand? Like, how soon until go time, Bethany? And what should we be waiting for, or what should we be doing now? um, If there is something we can do now, what what should the listeners be paying attention to or doing? Sure. Well, you know, as I said earlier, there's many paths. Um, I think the most likely is a Senate bill introduction sometime this spring. I can't give you or we can't give you an exact date because we don't know. Um, Probably, again, it all change, but my projection would be that you'll you'll hear from many of our coalition members about a a bill announcement sometime in the spring. Um, That would be our goal. And then the next step would be recruitment. And that would be the active step, I think. Um, for our members. It's like, okay, now we have a bill introduced. We're going to ask you to contact your senator and to join the bill. In, in, order, in other words, to become a co-sponsor. I perceive those as the next step. Um, Torin, do you, is that your, what your crystal ball is telling you too? Yeah, I think that's spot on. Um, we, as Bethany said, our, our Senator Wyden has really taken the lead on this, and we're sort of waiting to see how it plays out with um, original co-sponsors and sponsors to, to, you know, get this introduced. Um, but once that happens, it's go time, and so we will be asking folks to to contact their senators um, to ask them to to join the legislation, and then 
uh, move it through committee and ultimately to the Senate floor. And then from there, we'll, we'll tackle the House. And we do have um, pretty good support in the House already, too. And so that would likely be, you know, a secondary effort. Um, but right now, we're really just focused on and getting it introduced in the Senate this spring and then making headway in the Senate. So then in that case, it sounds like the most important thing that we as the listeners can do is just make sure that we're connected to a group like the National Deer Association or Pheasants Forever and making sure that we're on your news list so that when this happens, you will be able to tell us, hey, it's been introduced now it's go time. Am I right on that? Is that the number one thing we should do right now is make sure everybody listening is signed up for one of your group's news lists so that we can get the call to action when the time's right? Yep. Yep, that's the best That's the best for us too. And so we put out our weekly newsletter. And then on big items, um, and like this one, when it is go time, we'll send a separate action alert email out to everybody that signed up. Perfect. Well, that's easy. Everyone listening, this is the easiest action item I've ever asked for. Just sign up for a newsletter. This is great. Um, I appreciate you guys walking us through this. I appreciate you helping us kind of connect the dots between this this landscape back to the things that we love. Um, I'm glad to see that there's something coming down the pipeline that's going to help put more of this ground out there and keep it healthy and intact and able to support wildlife populations. This is uh, This is good stuff. So, uh, Bethany, do you have any closing thoughts or are you, are you good to go? Yeah, I just want to thank, uh, thank you for inviting us on and, and sharing this concept with your listeners and, um, would ask for folks to just please, uh, stay tuned and, and follow this effort as it moves. And when we ask for your help, we very much appreciate if you pick up the phone and, and call your member of Congress. Excellent. And Torn, any last thoughts from you? No, I agree. Just, uh, thank you for the platform, Mark. Um, uh, you're always always willing to tackle sort of these big conservation issues that aren't always, or at least outwardly, don't always direct um, seem to be directly tied to the the hunting and the hunting strategy that you typically talk about. But um, it's important that we have these conversations and that as hunters and outdoor enthusiasts and conservationists that we are engaged, uh, you know, in the back end on on these policy initiatives. So I appreciate that and, and the same thing. Um, once you do get those action items, whether that's from the NDA or pheasants or from any of the other organizations, uh, we really appreciate you taking action. It, it does make a difference um, when you submit that form. And I know it's such an easy task and it seems so simple uh, that it doesn't always seem like it actually makes a difference, but it does. Perfect. Well, uh, Torin, Bethany, thank you as well. I appreciate it. This, is, this has been interesting for me. I'm excited to see where this goes and uh, hopefully we'll have some good news to discuss uh, later this year or next year or however long it takes. So, uh, so thank you for doing the good work. All right. That's it. Thank you for tuning in. I appreciate it. I think we now know, um, we now know our, our action. We know our, our, our orders. We know what we got to do. We got to stay tuned. We got to keep our ears to the ground so that when this thing's ready to get out there, when this thing's hitting the pavement, we can make some noise about it. We can call our representatives, our senators, our congressmen and women. We can sign the petitions. We can leave the comments. We can send the emails. Whatever we got to do to make sure that we can keep more grassland habitat out there, we can do it. So appreciate you listening to this. I appreciate you all being a part of a community that makes a difference. We're not just hunters. We're advocates for these animals and for these places. And that is a powerful and pretty special thing. So I'm proud to be standing side by side with all of you 
and uh, making sure that deer hunters give back just as much as we take. That's what it's all about, friends. So appreciate it. Have a great day, a great week, a great weekend. And until next time, stay wired to hunt. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. Clean and protect your firearms with Riptide Armory. Riptide, a veteran-founded business. It's dedicated to producing American-made cleaning chemicals and also dedicated to creating American jobs. And that commitment is embodied in every product that's bottled, labeled, and shipped from their Arvada, Colorado facility. Safe for all firearm types and surfaces. Embrace the power of American ingenuity and protect your firearms with the best. Visit RiptideArmory.com.